This morning, we, as we are continuing uh, going through the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, looking at the earthly ministry of Jesus, uh, we are find ourselves in Mark chapter 13 uh, this morning. Uh, we have been uh, spent multiple weeks in Mark chapter 12 where uh, he, Jesus uh, had been in the, the temple. Uh, this is in his, his last week. Uh, before his crucifixion and resurrection, and he had been engaged in sparring with his or with, with his uh, with his religious opponents, with the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, um, and now uh, this the conflict is over. There they are leaving the temple, and this is where we find ourselves this morning here in Mark chapter thirteen. So. Uh, before we, we read, this is a, a longer passage we're going to be reading than we've, we've typically uh, done, but it needs to be uh, all handled in one, uh, in, in, in one sermon. Uh, but also, as well, there's, there's some difficulties in it as well. Uh, it's known as the Olivet Discourse, the, the discourse that Jesus gave to his disciples about the signs of the end and on the Mount of Olives, hence the name, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, so let's, let's pray. Uh, we always need the Holy Spirit with us in these times, uh, during the, the time of, of, of preaching. Of, of the, of the preacher needs it, certainly. Uh, we as hearers need it also. And how much more on a, on a day with, when we have a difficult passage like this. So let's, let's pray. Lord God, uh, we, we need to hear from you. Your word is good. It's profitable for us. It's true. It's our life. We need to hear from you. We need our thoughts focused upon what you have to say to us. We need our hearts opened. We need our minds alert. and Our ears open to receive this word with gladness. To receive it not just simply as a, as a history lesson here of what you've done and what you promised to do, but... Continuing again to see the Jesus Christ who is the one who has spoken them, but the one whom it centers upon as well. We ask that he would be made known this morning. That as we come away this morning that we would say how great of a Savior Jesus Christ is for us. And that our hope and our faith in him would be renewed. And that has to happen from our hearts and it has to happen from your spirit. So we ask you then in this time for him to be with us at work. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This is Mark chapter 13. This is the word of God. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus said to him, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. 
For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days... No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he, co- when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Amen. Well, as we all know, last weekend Hamas initiated surprise attacks upon the state of Israel and thus beginning yet another armed conflict happening in the Middle East and another armed conflict involving Israel. We all know the reports and the images of of horror that have been happening over there, such Terrible atrocities, widespread suffering, such uh, unspeakable things. But with conflict, as, as all conflict, though, 
but especially conflict which involves Israel, people seek to understand what does this mean? And not just questions about where is God amid such awful atrocity? Where is he with such awful suffering and violence? But questions though also, what does this mean for the end time? How does this all fit in here to the grand scheme? And it's common for us to read a passage like the Olivet Discourse through the lens of human history, especially as we see it unfolding before our eyes right now in real time. But what we need to do is actually to take the opposite approach. Not to read the Bible through the lens of history, but to interpret life and the world through the lens of Scripture. Now, this is probably the most debated passage in all of the Gospels. It's in Matthew and Luke as well here. Uh, And for good reason. There's a lot of uh, strange things in here. There's a lot of details. Uh, There's a lot of difficulties. And there's been a lot of ink that has been spilled on the overall meaning of this passage But don't forget, though, that being able, or sorry, that being difficult to understand doesn't mean that it can't be understood. Because this passage can be understood, even though all of the details may not come with, with complete clarity. We need to remember who was the one speaking. It was Jesus. Jesus is the one who was speaking to his disciples there. And there's this deep pastoral concern as he is talking with them, as he wants to know his disciples, or as he wants his disciples to know all of these things. There's a pastoral concern that he has, but there's also a pastoral concern from Jesus written down here by the human author Mark for us. Because he wrote it, again, moved by the Spirit, he wrote it also for his original audience. He wrote for their understanding, the church in in most likely Rome, the, the, the Gentile believers there. He wrote it for their understanding, and he wrote it assuming that they could understand it. But the scripture is also given to us. It's also for us to understand as well, and with a relevance that is equally for us all here as well. And Jesus gave this discourse to instruct and to shepherd his people amid the inevitable turmoil. The turmoil that was happening then, the turmoil that happens now, the turmoil that is going to, that's yet to come, and the turmoil that's happening all in between these times. And the concern of this discourse really at its heart is being a faithful disciple. To be a faithful disciple, how, to, to give hope amid persecution, to impart assurance to us amid turmoil and not to be given over to a speculation, apocalyptic fervor. One commentator I've read here says, Vigilance, or vigilance rather than calculation is required of the disciples and of the church. Now, the, the difficulty, admittedly, in preaching a passage like this is more than just the interpretation. The difficulty really is not turning this into a lecture. Because that's not what preaching is. Preaching is not a lecture. Preaching is not just simply teaching or instruction. Preaching at its heart here is heralding Christ for you. It's giving you Christ as he is found in the scriptures here, as he's given to you from the word. And so a sermon that just stimulates the mind but yet doesn't engage the heart misses the target. Its purpose here is to bring forth life. Life that is in Christ. And so the power of this This passage here isn't in the details of all the stories of history. The power is in the overall redemptive story of God, which centers upon Jesus Christ, who was given to you. 
That's what imparts life here. But at the same time as well, it is God's word. We do need to honor the passage. Jesus had obvious intents in delivering this sermon to his disciples. Uh, Mark, the Holy Spirit, had obvious intents in, in inspiring Mark to write it down for us, right? It has intentions for us too. All of scripture is profitable. Some passages, though, need to be addressed differently than others do. And there are different views on how to interpret this discourse here. And there are different, different views, even at different levels, on how to interpret this. And just at, at the outset here, I think the best way to read this is speaking of both past and future events. And so I'm going to bring us, though, through this passage. I'm going to show us the past. I'm going to show us the future. And I'm going to show us the present. And in that order, because I believe that's the order in which it's presented here for us. And then I want to conclude all of this with some final observations. But the whole scene, though, begins with Jesus and his disciples leaving the temple. And they, 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 they walk out and the disciples see the incredible grandeur of, of, of the temple, right? They say, oh, Jesus, what, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And they were right about that. Lots of white marble, lots of, lots of gold overlay. It was actually uh, this temple here, the temple of, that was built by Herod, the second temple, was, was known as one of the great wonders there of the world at that time. And Jesus says, you see it all? It's going to be destroyed. It must have taken the, them aback quite a bit, because, but they don't ask why, though. When they get back onto the Mount of Olives and they sit down, they don't ask Jesus Why? For one thing, they understood the implications. They understood that if the temple was gone, that it meant that Israel, it meant that Jerusalem was gone. And if Jerusalem was gone, if the temple was gone, it would also mark the beginning of a new era in the history of their people. Something like this could only happen because of God's judgment. And it also, though, would, would, they knew that it would introduce some shift, though, in identity for God's people also. But we ask why also. Why? Why did all this have to happen there? Why is all of this so important? Why is the idea of the, the temple being thrown down such an important idea? And the reason why is, is because the temple became a stumbling block in the relationship that Israel had with God. Right? It, was, it, was, it was a stumbling block in their devotion that they had. Because the focus became not upon God and trying to live wholeheartedly following after God. The focus of their religion, the focus was actually on their external actions. It was going about things that were not pleasing to God, right? It was all about trusting in, temp, in the temple rituals. It wasn't about actually trying to follow after them by the heart. And all of this here, as they went through, as they went through their empty religious practices, as they tried to, uh, as they, they brought in other things, as, I mean, it just showed the bankruptcy of their hearts. It showed the bankruptcy of their true worship. It was empty. The temple here for them then, as they were going about their practice, showed the hearts of the people and the, and the inadequacy of the temple worship for them, too. That it's not enough to perform sacrifice when what God wants is the heart. And that these sorts of re religions can't change the heart. 
So all of this was intended to point them to God in order to bring about a change within them that it could not come from within themselves. They needed grace. They needed to be changed from the inside. Now we're, we're outraged at hypocrisy, aren't we? Especially religious hypocrisy and especially when it doesn't involve us. Now if we're outraged at that, what about God? Don't you think God then is outraged when it, this sort of hypocrisy in worship is actually done in his name? It is rebellion. It is rebellion that is, that is um, dressed up in the name of God. And God takes all of that seriously. And the destruction of the temple here was a, is, a, is an image then of his righteous anger that he has for all of this. So we ask why? Well, it can be applied, though, also not just to the destruction of the temple, but all of the destruction that we see happening in this whole discourse. Because it's more than just Israel's rebellion that's talked about. On the wider scope here is also human rebellion before God as well. It's not just them. It's us, too. The people of Israel were no different than you or I. It was the same heart that lies in them lies in everyone. Rebellion is entrenched within humanity. It's like a worm entering an apple and it's eating it from the inside. It still may look pretty good on the outside, but the goodness of it all from, is just is profaned. It's empty. It's rotting. The question they ask, though, isn't why. The question the disciples ask is when. When is all this going to happen? What about the temple? When's it going to be thrown down? When can we expect this to happen? When will this new age begin? And Jesus begins here, starting in verse 5, the verse is 23. talks about the past. At least in our perspective, the past. Past for us was still actually future for the disciples. We need to remember that. Actually, past for us in this point here, right now, was still actually future for, the, uh, for Mark when he was writing this letter as well, or this letter, this, uh, this gospel as well. It was what was about to come upon them, but yet not in a so distant future. And he begins to talk about, starting in, in, in verse 5 and going on, this empire-wide turmoil, which for them, empire-wide was simply worldwide. This turmoil of, of, of the whole empire and of, of, the, of the things of, of, of all across the world, things that we are just accustomed to, unfortunately. It's almost like we become numb to them or we just expect them to happen. It just was routine. Wars, rumors of wars. I mean, the things that we've been reading about. The created order shuddering. Earthquakes, famines. Right? How do you feel when you hear news of such things? When you open up your, your web browser and you read the news, if you open up the paper, as you read of war and suffering that's happening right now in Israel and in Gaza, what, are you, what, what comes to mind? Right? What, what, do you, what do you feel? It's, it's sorrow. It's anguish. It's anger. But undoubtedly, for some of us, there's also anxiety too. Right? News like this makes people anxious about various things, anxious about the suffering that people are going through, anxious for what this means for the rest of the world. What's happening? Why is all of this happening? In fact, how bad is this going to get? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 7, he says, it's not the end yet. This is not the end yet. This stuff happens, it's not the end. He says, it's only the beginning of birth pains. It's just the start. And that idea of the beginning of birth pains has really taken 
uh, new meaning to me after I witnessed my wife give birth to our three children. I will never, ever understand the pains of childbirth. But I recognized two things when I saw her giving birth to our three kids. That, child, or that birth pains increase in frequency and they increase in intensity. They come with greater frequency and they come harder and harder and harder. Yet from all of the increased pain, though, eventually what happens? There's, there's something new and beautiful that eventually emerges. A child. It shouldn't alarm us when the world groans, right? when, when the, the, the foundations of the world are shaken like this. But neither, though, should we dismiss them as well because this is real suffering that happens. But, you know, it's just the next wave of contractions. They're coming and they're coming and they're coming with more and more furiosity. But that's not all, though, too. There's also religious turmoil that Jesus talks about, too. People who will come bearing falsely his name, claiming his authority, which is the authority of God, not authority from him, though, that's been given to them. And why is this all contributing to the problem? Because it's leading people astray. It's giving people false hopes amid all of the turmoil. When people need hope in these times, right? When anxious people need hope. When people who are suffering need hope. Hope matters to us, right? Especially when the world is reeling beneath our feet. Our foundations. This gets to our very foundations of what we stand upon. We need hope. We need concrete hope. And Jesus is concerned not for his, people, for his people to be not led astray and for them to hold on to the real hope that is found in him. And that's why he gives this important imperative in verse 5 at the beginning. See that no one leads you astray. And that's why he's talking to them in the first place, right? He's talking to them because he knows our weaknesses, especially in the face of anxiety. He knows how prone we are to, to anxiety and for taking our eyes off of, the, off of our hope, off of Christ. He's telling us, don't be distracted. Keep your eyes open and keep your eyes ahead. Look to me. I'm the one who's not only telling you all these things which will happen, but I'm the bedrock and the foundation for your hope. But there's another, there's a transition here in verse 9, and there's another imperative that we have. Be on guard, he says. Be on guard. These are not just worldwide events, but worldwide events also affect individuals, Right? And he talks about it here in the first of all in the form of persecution. He says you're going to be brought before governments. Uh, you're going to be, be, be put on trial by authorities. You're going to be hated by all. In fact, you're even going to be hated and handed over by family members as well. This is hatred which tears apart the bonds of blood. He says in all of this though too, all of this, what matters here is the utmost importance that the gospel goes forth despite these worldwide troubles. He says the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. Verse 10, it must be proclaimed because the one is the priority. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and, and, and his kingdom is the only hope for lost humanity. That's what we need. That's what the world needs in times of turmoil and turbulence. But also the purpose, though, too. The hope of the nations needs to go out to all of the nations. This is the hope. We have the hope. It's our foundation. It ought to be the world's foundation for their hope as well. Is persecution and suffering worth it? Is it truly worth it? Because that's what's going to, Jesus says that's what's going to happen then for, 
for you will be suffering in my name. Going forth with the gospel means that there will be suffering. Is it worth it? Well, if this gospel is true, if it actually truly is life for us, if it truly is the Son of God in human flesh who has come to reconcile humanity and to make all things new, just as Jesus says so, if, if this is truly life, then of course it's worth it. It's what we're founded upon. It's love that compels us, love for Jesus Christ and love for others to give them this hope as also. It becomes worth it if we consider who we are our own selves. It's hope for us as sinners, as broken people. It's the foundation of our lives. It ought to be for others as well. See, amid the trials here, Jesus gives them a reminder to stay focused. He says the world is coming apart at the seams. It's God's purpose here that the, world, that the world's happening here, but yet also it becomes a distraction. It draws our focus away from these things. The church is people who have hope. And people with hope can't keep that hope to themselves, especially in times of suffering. He says the gospel must be proclaimed, even throughout persecution, because it is worth it. Because the, the, the reclamation of sinners is worth it to Jesus. We aren't just people who are given hope. We're also called to be people to go forth and to give others hope. And Jesus calls them to endurance. He says in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. As Jesus calls them to endurance, he also though, this is so key, he promises not to leave them alone. Because why is a suffering happening? It's a suffering for the sake of Jesus, all right? That is enduring all the way to the end, suffering for her, his sake. How can you endure all the way to the end, suffering for his sake? Because suffering for his sake means suffering in union with him. It means you're suffering not just for your own self. You are suffering because Jesus Christ is everything and suffering because of the knowledge and that truth that he has you through that suffering. And that's the salvation in the end for those who endure is because he is already there at the end. He is already in the heavenly places at the end. He is already there at this moment preparing a place for us in the Father's house. Friends, that's good news for us. He's with them by his spirit then also as they stand trial. He says he's going to give you words to testify and make a defense. He tells that to the disciples. The book of Acts shows that over and over. They're speaking in these ways, giving these, these eloquent de defenses of the faith there. Now, what's important here to see is there's no promise of acquittal. There's no false hope of rescue from the hands of the authorities, but there's no need to be anxious amid all of that. Why? Because of the union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if all of this sounds familiar, it's because this is just the current course of the world, Right? None of this was new. And any increase of frequency here isn't new either. It's only the beginning of birth pains. Oh man, things seem to be getting worse, right? People say that all the time. Well, yeah, it shouldn't surprise us in the church, should it? Of course, thing seems, things are getting worse. But there though comes an event though for these disciples that Jesus says later is going to happen in their lifetime. That changes everything though. And that is the destruction of the temple and that's where the next transition moves here in verses 14 to 23, when Jesus is still talking about past events, but he's talking specifically now about 
the destruction of the temple. And this is where he begins to get their, or where he begins to answer their question. Well, when? When is this going to happen? This is when. Jesus is foretelling one of the most atrocious events in Jewish history. The destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem by the Roman general Titus, which happened in 70 AD. Now, all moments in history are guided by God. Right? Even, even as done by the events that are done by, by people and nations, these sorts of things, they're still guided by God. This is the God of history. Right? Rome sacking Jerusalem was not just some tangential moment that was outside of God's, God's purview. He knew all what was going to happen, and he was using it for his purpose here. And he warns them to watch out for the abomination of desolation. There's probably going to have some kids with bad dreams tonight after hearing that. The abomination of desolation. But what he's talking about here is destruction after this moment here will, will soon come afterwards. It's a, some sort of a historical event or historical figure. And there's no consensus exactly on what this was historically. But what it means, though, is this. It was something that was going to be set up in the temple or someone in the temple that would be so abominable, that would be so desecrating to it, that it would, that it would deter the people from, from entering the temple. It would, make, it would defile it in such a way that the, the Jews would say, I'm not going in, thus making it desolate. Or maybe the, you know, what you could think of as the abomination which makes desolate. But why do we have this weird phrase, the abomination of desolation? Well, it's just Old Testament language that we see. It's picked up on in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and 12. And it referred for Daniel back in the Old Testament to someone who was going to do something similar, um, which in, in his day, before Jesus here, it was, uh, it was the, 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 the Greek general Antiochus Epiphanes who went and slaughtered a pig in the... In the in the, the temple there, and thus making it an abominable desecration, and no one wanted to go in then. Jesus doesn't tell them what it was. Jesus isn't telling them, well, this is what it is. He says, it's, look out for the abomination of desolation, right? But he says they would, rec- but they would recognize it when, though, when it happened. That's what it means when he says, let the reader understand. These people would have understood that there was something that was, that's it. He isn't telling them what exactly it is. He says, you'll know it when you see it, though. And when you see it, when you see that thing happening, and you'll know it, when you see it, flee. Get out of town. Because there's going to be a period of, of tribulation and immense suffering like you will not imagine that's about to happen. Get out of town. Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Judea as fast as you can. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who have young children, God have mercy upon them and pray that it does not happen in winter because it's just going to make it that much worse. And he says, don't be distracted as you go. Don't look back. Don't, have, don't, don't, be, don't be deterred by people who are giving false hopes of, of rescue or, or, or of, of a Messiah here coming to help you. That's what he says in verses 21, 22. If anyone says, look, there's the Christ. Don't follow after him. Get out. Because this is going to be an event in which the entire world would, would feel its, its reverberations. Right? There are certain events in history which have had that effect, right? I think for us most notably, September 11th, right? It has totally changed our world. And it wasn't not just America. It has totally changed the world in which we live. 
And this here would be an event that would change the course of Jewish history, but it all would also change the history of the world because it would be a sign of the new era now of the gospel not being tied to, our part, to a particular place or people. The destruction of the temple was, in one sense, not just... Not just uh, it wasn't just a sign of God's judgment there, but it also had this deep redemptive historical significance as well. God's people aren't just tied to this thing of a temple. No, the new temple is the church. The spirit of God is not in, a, in an earthly building. The spirit of God is with us. But it was also a sign of judgment as well for those who were not believing, for rebellious people who had claimed the name of God. And it would take this sort of of an event though, an event so severe here that it was only God's mercy upon his elect, upon his loved ones, his chosen ones, that would actually bring it to an end. We have to think about this here today. Well, man, Jesus and that New Testament God is so different from the Old Testament God by downplaying judgment. Really? Is that really the case? Because Jesus is talking about plenty of judgment here. He's talking about what God's judgment looks like. He says, God's judgment looks like this. The historical accounts, if you read, of what happened here by, by the historian Josephus, it's terrible. But this is a judgment, though, from God that is comprehensive. It's a judgment that is wrathful. It's also a judgment, though, that is just. And the, this is the atrocious terror that, that's poured out on Jerusalem, though. This is a glimpse, though, of what Jesus endured on the cross. The destruction of Jerusalem there, the, the judgment there poured out, there is, is only a glimpse of what Jesus endured on the cross. That's what God's wrath looks like. God, or Jesus, when he went to the cross, had that for his people, for his elect, poured out upon him. Right? His judgment isn't only localized in events. God's judgment isn't only localized in events. It's also personalized as well upon rebellious sinners. The good news of this gospel, though, that Jesus wants to go forth amid all of the the, the trials and persecutions is that Jesus, the Christ, would take all of it. That he would take it all upon the cross and that the elect then, his beloved people, are spared from God's wrath because Jesus has taken it for them. That brings us here now to the future. We've seen the, 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 the past, what, what was in the past, now the future. In verse which the future here is mostly concerned in verses 24 through 27. Up to this point, everything has been primarily in our past, which again was also their future. But there's a shift now in everything. There's something else that Jesus is speaking about that's still to come. And he says in verse 24, in those days... After that tribulation, which means at some point afterwards, when he's talking about that tribulation, he's talking about everything that was coming upon Jerusalem. He says, in those days after then, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. There is something so cataclysmic here that's about to happen, that the, the world is going to be undone. This is words that he's pulling from Isaiah 13, 
which describes judgment upon the nation, specifically judgment upon Babylon, who was coming in and who was, uh, who was actually going and destroying the first temple, but it's also judgment upon the rest of the world here. And we have in all of this, all of this happening here, the stars falling, the sun and moon darkened, Christ now coming, reappearing as the Son of Man, Christ coming in glory in the hope of his authority and his power and the fullness of his kingdom, not only breaking into the earth, but doing so in visible fashion, swallowing up all of the darkness in the world. His coming is what brings about the undoing of the world and, it's, and the judgment upon the nations. And then not only that, but coming in glory, his glory to remake it all. What we have described here is Jesus Christ coming as conqueror, coming to set everything right by bringing justice to the world. It means that Rome wouldn't get away unaccountable. And neither will the authorities which persecute the the, the people of Christ the King. And in all of this here, he gathers together his elect, says in verse 27, he shares what he has with them. He gives them glory, glory for people who have been broken and who have been downtrodden. And this here is the definitive transition from one age to another. This is the remaking of all things in Christ. It is a ripping apart the cosmos all the way down to the studs, pulling out all the rotten drywall, everything so that it can all be renewed because the world is just that busted and it's just that broken and the rot that goes in the walls goes deep. Everything needs to be pulled apart down the, all the way down to the studs in God's divine rebuilding project. And the good news is he doesn't do it over a period of time. He does it in a day, the day of Christ's coming. But we also see here judgment though too. It's not just a day of salvation. Jewish rebellion and subsequent judgment is no different than the rest of, for the rest of the world. Jesus came to make all things new and that involves removing everything that spoils so when, when does all this happen? Again, after the tribulation, verse 24, that says, after that tribulation, again, after the destruction of the temple. Okay, so when, when is this going to happen? After? Okay, when? I don't know. Okay, I can't tell you when exactly, but I can tell you this, that there's a gap. And sometimes that might be a very long gap. And there is. It, for these people, they could have thought, well, it could have been shortly after Or it could have been a long time after. Or in our case, as we are still continuing to wait, we are approaching 2,000 years almost later. But, you know, waiting doesn't mean that it's in vanity, though, right? The promise of Christ and his coming here, even though we haven't seen it fulfilled yet, that promise hasn't diminished for us. And that's where 3.3, the present, that's where this comes in for us here. Verses 28 through 37, Jesus is going to be talking primarily for us now? How do, we, how do we wait in the present? What's this look like as we are waiting in between the times? Well, first he addresses those who lived in, in this time here, that, that generation pre the destruction of the temple, verses 28 and 31. He says, well, learn to read the times. Look at the fig tree. You know about the fig tree? Figure out what season it is by looking at its branches and its leaves. You can know that. And so read the time. Figure out what's going on. Where are we now? Not in a speculative sense, but understand where you are in redemptive history. Watch. Learn. It's going to happen within a generation, Jesus says. And it did. 
40 years later here. But he also, though, gives an assurance of his words. He says, my words, where heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And those aren't only the words of judgment that he's saying. I think this is important, too. It's also his words of promise and his words of assurance. His promise to them, even amid all of the turmoil and the persecution, he is giving them, take my words here of peace in my providence. Trust in my salvation as you go and as you wait. Now, for those of us here, which as far as I can tell is all of us after the destruction of the temple, in verses 32 to 37, it's the same words of assurance here can be taken by us. Jesus is saying judgment's coming. Terror is befalling the world. And things are growing very dark. But you know what? Mark was, was waiting. As, as Mark wrote this, he was waiting. As the apostle Peter wrote in his exhortations that we heard earlier in 2 Peter to wait and the trust, he was waiting for the same thing. John was waiting as he wrote the book of Revelation, continuing to, to talk about all of this here. The, the second century church, as they were persecuted, they were waiting for this great hope. St. Augustine, as he wrote the city of God, it was talking about the, the hope there too, he was waiting. Coptic Christians who were killed by Muslims, they are waiting for the same hope. Japanese Christians in the 17th century, as they were martyred, were also waiting for this hope. We here, here also are continuing to wait in the same hope. This is not a new hope for us. It's nothing different. It's the same hope that God's people have always trusted in. And yet still, amid all of this here, Jesus' promise of coming in full glory continues to stand. Because that day is still to come, and it will come unexpectedly. No one knows. There's no use trying to figure out when. All we know is it's ahead of us. There's no use trying to prepare ourselves by looking at the news. None of that's helpful. None of that's really honoring to him, is it? What's the best way to prepare? It's not idle speculation. The best way to prepare is staying awake. That's what Jesus says in verse 33, 35, 37. He says it three times, stay awake. The best way to stay awake is to remain active. And that means to serve. Waiting isn't passive. Right? The gospel still needs to go forth, right? The weak still needs strengthening. We still have neighbors that need to be loved. The kingdom of God is still to be sought after and worked for. Stay awake. We're going to read just a few concluding observations from all of this here as we kind of step back from it all. One is that Jesus has this deep pastoral concern, Right? I mean, think of all of the ways that Jesus could have answered the question. He could have just said, it's going to happen. Stay awake. But he does so in this way that is, that it, you know, that it's a whole chapter here. He, he answers it sufficiently for them. He answers it in a way that is rooted in his promise. Even the imperatives that he gives are intended to focus their eyes away from our own natural anxiousness that we may be prone to and, and to focus upon him as our foundation. Jesus has a deep pastoral concern for his people as they hear these words and as they wait. Jesus doesn't want us to be anxious in these times. He wants us to rest and to find peace in him. 
The second observation, though, here is that our assurance that we have, this assurance that he talks about, it will be made manifest. Jesus may have come hidden to us, but you know what? He's going to return in glory, and everyone's going to know it. His return isn't going to be a rumor. It's not going to come to us from someone that says they have secret knowledge. How do we know? Jesus says, you're going to know, because everyone is going to know. And the reason why that's important is because he hasn't come yet. He hasn't come in some secret way for us to go find. So take heart because your deliverer is still coming. Third observation that we can take here is that glory comes through suffering. There is no indication that we have here at all that waiting here is going to be easy. It's a life of suffering. It's a life that's filled with living in a world of turmoil. It involves persecution. And all of this is to be expected. That's the norm. But being a disciple, though, means enduring suffering. It means not only suffering from the natural world and all of what's going on around us, but it's also suffering for the sake of Christ from others. But again, remember that promise that he says. Remember that glory comes to those who endure. Glory, the glory of Christ the glory of Christ, the one who is worth it, the one who is worthy, the one whom, who, the lamb who was slain, whom all creation and all the saints cry out, worthy are you, for you are the lamb who was slain to take the scroll. He's the one himself who suffered and entered into glory. That's the glory that we will also enter into with him. And last, the last observation here is the reason that we have this account And the reason that we have all apocalyptic literature in the Bible, in the New Testament here, is for faithful endurance and discipleship. Jesus, as he wrote, as he spoke this, as Mark wrote this, it was about to, he was to a people who were about to undergo deeply traumatic events. But amid here all this is the hope and concern here of Jesus. The hope and concern of Jesus, and that's why he gives these imperatives to us to be careful, to watch, to wait, to stay awake. They are reminders as we endure. They're reminders to endure as we follow after him, as we suffer for his name. And we don't just do so on on our own, but we are given the spirit as we suffer for his name. We're given glimpses of glory. We're given the promise of glory as we suffer in his name. And it's all for the purpose of faithful endurance as following as faithful disciples. Because we have something better than this crumbling, reeling world to lift our eyes towards and now to carry on as keepers of the hope that is given to us. Let's pray. Lord, amid all of the difficulties in interpreting this passage, there is one thing that we need to know. And that is that Jesus Christ is exalted And he will return someday. And so please keep our eyes focused upon the right things, upon him, looking out for him, serving him, serving others, serving for the sake of the kingdom, to stay awake and to prepare for his coming and his return. And help us then to stay awake. Help us to overcome our tiredness and our sleepiness. And fill us with your spirit to enliven us and to give us that boost to act and to love and to serve out of faith. We thank you for the table that you have 
given to us here. We pray that you'd prepare our hearts as we ourselves prepare to come to it. In Jesus' name, amen.